the title of our series, All Things for Good, actually comes from the New Testament, though we're looking at a story in the Old Testament. This idea that the God that we serve and the God that we worship, the God that we pray to, is, is big enough and wise enough and good enough that he is able to work out all things together for good. Paul put that in a short phrase in the eighth chapter of a letter he wrote to the Romans when he said, all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. As we're going through an Old Testament book and looking at the lives of two women in Israel a long, long time ago, we're seeing how this plays out. And it's a careful distinction that we made at the beginning, but we're going to make it again here, is the, the title is not all things are good, it's all things for good. When, when the Bible says that God is able to take any situation or circumstance that we're going through and he can work it out for good, that's not the same as saying everything that happens is good. Bad things happen in this world. People ignore God all the time. And they do things that God does not want them to do. It was Jesus himself when he was on this earth and his disciples came to him and they said, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? He said, well, one of the things you should pray for is that it would be that God's will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. He taught them to pray that because in this world, more often than not, God's will is not done than done. And so he said to his disciples, make this a point of your prayer. Pray that people would do God's will. So we acknowledge that a lot of bad things happen. There's a lot of messiness to this world and to this life. And all things are not good. And when we come to the Bible, we're thankful to see that it acknowledges that. It doesn't try to sugarcoat that in any way. It doesn't just try to distract us from that and entertain us and say, no, no, don't look at all the bad. Just look up here, just look up here, and, and, and you'll just forget about everything. The Bible actually acknowledges the brokenness in this world. And yet, in all of that brokenness, shows to us a God who is not in any way limited by our choices or our circumstances or our situation. And that's the good news. God is the central character throughout all of the Bible, showing again and again that he is faithful, that he can do things that we could never do. So actually, in the book of Ruth, it was only in the very, very first five verses where about as many things that could go wrong and that were not good happened. And in a family that was just looking to, to relocate due to a famine, trying to get, just to keep their family alive, it wasn't just a few years later where Naomi had lost her husband and her two sons, had two daughters-in-law, but they were foreigners, they were from the land which they had traveled to, and so there was a cultural difference, there was a linguistic difference, there was a religious difference between them. And she sat there as an older lady and about as many things that could have gone wrong had gone wrong. But it's a miracle that the book of Ruth doesn't end in verse five. That there is more to the story than what would have ever been possible for anyone within the story to see. There was a future that they did not yet know about. And the chapter we're going to today is where we start to materialize the future that is possible for this family 
good news starts to come in increasing measure to this family and things become possible that they never would have thought possible had we interviewed them at the end of verse five in chapter one. If we would have stopped right there and said, so what, what, what's the forecast for you? What, what are you looking forward to in the new year? Just would have said, I, I don't even know if I'm gonna make it through the day, let alone the year. But we're not in chapter one, verse five anymore. We're in chapter three in the book of Ruth. And if you'll follow along, we'll read the chapter in its entirety. This is on page 223. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, if you're using your phone, then you have no excuse for finding it (laughs) quickly. But if you're using one of these, then it's page 223. Ruth chapter three. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, that's Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down, Ruth, to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, who, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then, as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. And so she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? And then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And she replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And that's where we conclude, which is a really hard place to stop. 
because it's right in the middle of the drama and you want to know exactly what's about to take place. But the first thing that we notice in verse 1 is that Naomi comes up with a plan. Uh, the, the time gap between chapter 2 and chapter 3 is, we don't know exactly how long it is, but it's at least several weeks. Ruth had started working in the fields in Bethlehem. She happened, as it said in chapter 2, to enter into the field of this man named Boaz, and he invited her to keep coming back, to say, if you come into this field, I can make sure that you're cared for and you're protected, that no one will harm you. And so the invitation was there for her to keep on working. And so that's what transpired. She kept on working through the harvest. So we don't know exactly how much time later. It doesn't tell us. But eventually, Naomi comes up with a plan. And it's an interesting plan. But one of the first takeaways that we can have from it is that her own perspective is starting to change. It's starting to come around. Whenever you interact with someone who emotionally is in despair or financially is in distress... When someone is just at the bottom that they can be, either emotionally or financially, one of the characteristics of that is that they don't plan anymore. They don't think about the future. Their biggest concern is they have no idea where they're going to get lunch from today. So you come up to them and say, so what are you, you, know, what is, what are you looking forward to in the spring? They don't know if they're going to make it to the spring. They're just focused on the present. They're just focused on today. They're not thinking past today in any way, if they're destitute financially or emotionally, if they're in despair. So one of the signals of a person coming around and coming out of despair or seeing hope physically and financially is that they begin to think about the future again. And they, they believe that there is more than just today. And that starts to affect the way they think. When Naomi had come back into town, she asked everyone basically to change her name and so that her name reflected all of the bad things that had happened to her. And she couldn't see the future that she had to such an extent that she tried to talk both of her daughters-in-law to not coming with her. She says, I'm going to go back, but I, I have no future and I believe that so much that I would rather tell you to not hit your wagon to, to me. You need to go somewhere else. You need to find someone else that you can invest yourself in because I just don't even see the future for me. And that was her attitude. One of the daughters took her advice and went back to town and it was Ruth who said, I'm with you wherever you go. I'll be with you no matter what happens. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. In all of that time, Naomi had never lost her faith in God. She believed in God. Even the way she changed her name reflected that she still believed in God. But what she was saying is, God is allowing these things to happen in my life, and that doesn't make sense to me, and I don't have any indication that he's going to stop doing what he's doing. So she believed he was there, but she wasn't sure if goodness and mercy were going to follow her the rest of the days of her life, as it says in Psalm 23. That was the part she was struggling to believe. I believe he's there. I believe he's capable. I'm looking at my circumstances in my life, and I'm not sure he has much of a future left for me specifically. When we get to chapter 3, 
And now it's Naomi who comes up with an idea. She comes up with a plan, something to do. We get from that that there's a change that's going on in her own heart. That as she's observed these last couple of weeks and her daughter-in-law able to work in the field of this man Boaz and she remembers who Boaz is and how he's actually related to them in some way. Now she's starting to think more and more, not just about that specific day and whether Ruth can come home with food at night. Ruth has already demonstrated that. She's bringing home the bacon every single day, except it's Israel, so it's not bacon. But she's bringing home food every single day. That's taken care of. What she's wondering is, is their future past that? So she comes up with this plan. Now, this is quite the interesting plan. What she does is she tells Ruth to go at the end of an evening so that no one can actually see what's happening and that if she's able to get herself into the very place where Boaz falls asleep. This is a risky plan. This isn't go up to him in the middle of the day when everyone's around. This isn't, I'm going to come with you. I've already talked to him. I've already worked things out. You just follow me. Let me do the talking and everything will go well. She has something specific that she wants Ruth to do, but this is going to be risky. She wants him to go and to be able to encounter him in a way where it is only the two of them and no one else knows or can hear the conversation that they're going to have. And what she tells Ruth to do is, one, that, that's the setting. Find him when no one else is around and you can have his attention one-on-one. What am I supposed to talk about? I think this is someone you should consider marrying. I think you should pursue this person as a helper, not just for this one season of harvest, but for the rest of your life. I think this is someone who would be a suitable husband for you. And she tells her, therefore, to wash herself and to anoint herself with oil and to put on, basically, a different set of clothes. So there's a couple of ways we can interpret that. One, it's just a matter of people didn't bathe themselves every day, and it's maybe a good time. You've been working hard for a couple of weeks. Um, And so go ahead and, and take a bath and anoint yourself. It's also a culture, like many cultures still in today's day, that you would know by looking at someone if they were mourning the loss of someone in their family. They would symbolize that they were mourning the loss of someone by wearing dark colors or maybe wearing a veil over their head, but you would look at them and say, that's, that's someone who's in mourning. And what she's telling her to clean herself off and to anoint herself with oil, help herself to smell a little better, put a new outfit on, is to say... You don't need to keep mourning my son. I know you loved my son. And you loved him enough that you've actually chosen to love me even though he's gone and you've loved me in a way that no other human being has ever loved. I know that you have that kind of love in you. I'm telling you it's okay to no longer mourn my son. That you can present yourself to someone else and still have a future that is defined by other things. You can build a new relationship. It's okay to meet someone new. So it probably has both of those elements to it, that there's just a sense of you're working hard, this would be a good thing for you to do, and also 
I want you to know that it's okay by me. You're not being in any way disloyal to me or to the memory of my son if you present yourself to someone else in the possibility of marriage. And that's, that's what she wants her to do. And Ruth's response is amazing in verse 5. I mean, she might have had questions and they went back and forth, but the narrator doesn't seem interested to let us know if that happened. It, Ruth just replies, everything you say, I will do. That what Naomi thinks is in the best interest of Ruth, she also is looking around and saying, yeah, if I was going to do this for somebody, this is somebody I would do it for, and I, I think this is a good idea, and I, I'm willing to, to give it a try. And so everything that Naomi says, she does. So that was the plan. Then comes the proposal. So now Ruth goes down herself. She's kind of observing what's going on. There's Boaz. He's eating and drinking. It says he gets merry and happy. And so uh, eventually he's just had a good night and he's, they're enjoying the fruit of the harvest and he lays down. And the instructions for her is once you see that he's down and he's down long enough that nobody else is around is that you go uncover him a bit, and then lay down by him. Now, the reason I say that this is a risky plan, and we don't even know entirely what is in Naomi's mind as she's telling her this, is if at any point anybody walks in on this, this doesn't look good. Right? Okay, go while he's sleeping, uncover him a little bit, and then lay down next to him. This is the mother giving the daughter advice. This isn't, okay, um, I'll, I'll do that. But again, make sure no one's around, no one sees this. And we find out that Boaz himself is asking the question once he wakes up and he's like, who are you? And they, it didn't say it in there, but I think maybe even, how much did I have to drink last night when I was eating dinner? Like, what happened that here I am, I'm, and you're here? So this is risky and not necessarily a, a pattern that you're supposed to follow in your own pursuits of another person, okay? But he wakes up and he's wondering, who are you? And she identifies herself right away. And then a phrase that is, we don't use this kind of language much anymore, but in verse 9, she says, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant for your redeemer. Spread your wings is exactly the phrase that Boaz had used just a chapter earlier. And he said, you've come here to Israel and you've come under the wings of God. In other words, you've come under the provision and the protection of God. And so when she says to him, spread your wings over me, it, she is actually making clear that she is there with the intention of proposing to this man that they be married. She's inviting him to become her husband, to spread his wings over her, to take on the responsibility, not just like he has as this uh, very nice older man that she's now interacted with for a couple of weeks, but now more intentionally, more specifically, to actually become the husband, to take the responsibility and the care and the provision for her life. So this is a story. In the Bible, the woman proposes to the man. So at least one application of this in the coming years, that that's okay if that's how it happens in any budding potential relationships out there within the sound of my voice.
It's not wrong as a woman to take initiative and to make your intentions clear. She does this, and what she's asking him to do, though, is asking him to do something that he has already been doing up until this point. These aren't two strangers that don't know each other. They've now had enough time with each other, and when she says to him, please uh, spread your wings over me for your Redeemer, there's twofold to it. She's acknowledging what he's already been doing. He has already, with no prospects of marriage in sight, been a person who was willing to treat her well and to take care of her and to provide for her. So this isn't, you know, I'm hoping we get married. If we get married, then I'll fix you and change you and and then everything will be great. No, that's not what's at work. It's two people looking at each other and even when they're not, marriage is not even on the table in their interactions with each other, they both treat each other in a way that you would hope a healthy relationship would reflect. They treat each other with respect. They treat each other with love. They treat each other with integrity. And so Naomi, in saying, I think this is someone you should pursue, is saying, I think you should pursue and and consider having a relationship with someone who takes care of you well, who loves you, who can provide for you, who in fact is already doing all those things. So this isn't... um, This is coming from the perspective of love and maturity, saying this is someone that you should seek. The phrase that she adds at the end of there, she says, you are a redeemer. This is another cultural thing that we don't have anymore in our language. But what she's saying is, you're related, you're connected to the family of the man that I was married to. And when someone died, the first place you went to to seek for help for the widow was within the family of that man who died. And she's saying, it, it can't be that guy's brother because his brother died too. They were both dead. And it can't be his father because the father's dead too. So he's not the immediate uncle. He's not the immediate cousin, but he is in fact part of the family. And so there's also precedent that he should consider it part of his opportunity and obligation to make provision for her. So she's saying, She makes the proposal, and then she reminds him or informs him, depending on how we're reading it, that he is someone who has all the legal rights to do this as well. But this is what she's asking. Now, there's plenty of ways, because there's so many details that aren't given for us to kind of fill in all the blanks and say, you know, Where exactly did she uncover him and where exactly did she lay down and what happened that many people look at it and say, yeah, this is so risky. I'm not sure what happened that night. Well, when we take chapter three in light of chapter one and two and see that all along they had the opportunity to choose the easy way or the hard way that the characters consistently demonstrate their willingness to choose the harder path, we shouldn't think that that changes in any way this evening. Ruth, if she would have wanted, could have said, I'm not going back with Naomi. You know how hard that's... I'm going to stick out. Like Everyone's going to know I'm, I'm the person that wasn't born here. And I'm going to go, and I don't have a husband, and I was married for a long time, and I wasn't able to have kids, and they're going to find that out about me too. If she wanted to choose the easy way, she just could have stayed in Moab. But she didn't. She went back. When 
they, she looked around and said, how are we going to eat tonight? She didn't choose the easy way. She went out and worked and worked hard all day long. And here she is. There is genuine affection for someone and it's actually reciprocal. They both like each other and they have the opportunity to choose the fast way or the hard way. Here again, they choose the harder and more noble way. So that actually at the end, it, Boaz says to her, not only is it his perspective, he says in verse 11, now my daughter, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, which is the exact same word that was used to describe him at the beginning of chapter two. So he was described as a worthy man, a noble man, which meant a person of character, of hard work, and in that character and in that hard work, growing success in the things that he did. Now, he's able to say, not only is it his perspective, but everyone else's perspective in the town, that Ruth is a worthy woman. So neither of these two people are seeking to do something that would compromise either of their reputations. They're worthy all throughout what happens, and they remain worthy at the end of it. In doing it in this way, though, in secretive and quiet at night, if he says no, no one knows. She doesn't do this in public and puts pressure on him and the opinions of outside people. This is done where no one else can verify, no one else can see. It's personal between the two of them. She doesn't know that he'll say yes. She doesn't go into this with any assurance that if you just do this, this is what's going to happen. It's a total risk. It's completely vulnerable. And should he say, you know what, you are a worthy person, but this isn't the direction I want to pursue. This isn't, you and I aren't thinking the same thing. Both of their reputations remain intact. They both remain worthy in the eyes of other people. But he doesn't turn her down. He actually says, yes, I do. I will. I'd love to marry you. But there's a problem. And that's where our passage ends. First the plan, then the proposal, then the problem. He says in verse 12, there's a redeemer nearer than I So remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. And so lie down until morning. So here's another example where we know that nothing out of character happens. Because Boaz, who is completely flattered by the proposal, I mean, he says it like, you've done for me a better kindness than even the first. I mean, I can't believe that you're willing to even consider me as someone to marry. Here it says, but he doesn't take the shortcut. There's, There's a redeemer nearer than him, which means there's a relative that's closer that actually has the obligation, legally speaking, uh, more specifically than he does. So he only has the availability and the freedom to pursue this in, in an actual marriage if that person first says, no, I, you know, I know I'm obligated to take care of this person because she married my cousin, but I don't have the resources to barely take care of my family. I can't add a person to my family. I just, I won't be able to take care of anybody. So th- that's the only scenario in which if that person says, you know, please relieve me of my obligation, then Boaz can step in and say, well, then I'll be happy I'll be happy to do that. And that's why I said, man, it's hard to end here because that's where it ends. We're only going to find out in chapter four what happens. But where 
Then Boaz decides to uh, send her off because now they're both looking at this scenario and saying, we would like this to happen, but there's a certain extent to which it's out of their control. He says, let me provide for you so that you can go home. When you go home to Naomi and show her that though we're not married yet, this is the intention and I'm making it clear by the form of this gift that I'm giving you and you can go home and show her and say, when she says, how did last night go? Well, we're not married yet, but this is, we're moving in that direction. The, the plan that you suggested, what, what you encouraged me to do, we're, we're actually moving in that direction. We're starting to believe again that there is a future, that there is a hope. And here all along, is communication going on between them with words and deeds. And that's always how communication works. Actually, if you, once you go into college and you take sort of speech 101, they tell you that 90% of your communication, maybe it's like 80% of your communication, is nonverbal instead of verbal. We're always communicating things to each other. We're communicating with our words, but we're also communicating with our actions and our deeds. Before chapter 3, they both, Ruth and Boaz, had been communicating to each other in the discipline of their work, in the, in the actions that they took on an everyday basis, that they could look at each other and say, you're a worthy person, you're a noble person, you're someone of character. And all of that action ahead of time led that when they finally are exchanging words with one another, they're not saying things hoping they'll become true, they're acknowledging things that are already true. And so if we just now take this out of the specifics of this story with these people and whether or not they're going to get married, the truth is for us that we're always communicating to the world with our words and our actions. And they will measure our words by our actions. They will look at us and say, you say you believe in God? You say you love God? You say you're following after God? Okay, so when you have the opportunity to take the shortcut or the hard road, which one will you take? And they're watching to see if our actions and our deeds will follow our words. You're saying you love people, you're saying you care, you say God loves the world and so you're supposed to love the world. Are, are you providing for and caring for people that in your sphere of influence you can look out and you can see they need care, they need concern? I mean, that was something that Ruth could see in Boaz. She came into town and she was as needy as could be as destitute as possible, an outsider and a foreigner. And he didn't just say, oh, I'm so glad you're pursuing God. I'm so glad you clung yourself to Naomi. I hope that goes well with you. He did what he could to make provision for the needs that she had. He didn't say, well, you just keep seeking God and, and, and he's just going to take care of that. Well, yes, he's going to take care of it, but he takes care of it through other people. And that's our challenge as well. When we're communicating our message to people and we're trying to tell them about God, they wonder if we care about the real problems and situations and sufferings that are going on. Because when people are in the situation that Naomi and Ruth were in chapter one, they're not initially asking the question, is there life after death? They're asking the question, is there life before death? Because they've gone through so many hard things and they're dealing with so many challenges. They're wondering, are there people out there that care about this? And as Christians, 
we, we don't have to choose between telling people the gospel and caring for and meeting their needs. And so we proclaim the message of what we believe. We say that Jesus is the only way, that he can save us alone from eternity separated from God. We proclaim that. But in proclaiming that, we don't also neglect that people are still starving in this world. And that should matter to us. People are still illiterate in this world. And that should matter to us. People are still legally unprotected from certain harms that are out there. And that should matter to us. That we care about all of that because we love God. And because we're being shaped increasingly into his image. And that when we tell people that this God is great and he is good, our words eventually are going to be measured in some way by our actions from other people. I mean, you know it in your own life. What turns you off more than anything than hypocrisy? And you don't have to be very old to pick up on the fact that someone is being a hypocrite, right? I, I can look up and I can see that they're telling me to do one thing, but they do another thing. You don't have to be very old before you start to notice those kinds of things. And the world is watching us. Watching to see if our words and our deeds match up. And as we're communicating his word, part of our mission statement of the church, to love God, to care for all people, and to communicate his word, our deeds matter. What we do gives us the opportunity to speak into the lives of people. But our deeds also can never be alone. Just like our words can never be alone, our deeds can never be alone. These two people aren't getting married if someone didn't ask someone. Right? Someone has to put it in challenge and say, are you open to this? Or are you not open to this? And we have to make sure that we use words that explain our deeds. Because we don't always know how people interpret the deeds that we do. And so you tell someone tomorrow, I went to church yesterday. Oh, great. What they think is, that's what you think you're supposed to do to go to heaven. You're a good person, and so you went to church because you think that's one of the things that you're supposed to do to go to heaven. Is that what you think? You think that by coming here, you're earning something? Say, no, 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 I I believe God came because none of us could earn it. Well, they're not going to know that if you don't tell them. If all you say is, I went to church, they'll think, okay, you're one of those people that just thinks you need to be religious, and if you're religious enough and you're good enough, then maybe God will forgive you. One of the things that we don't do uh, as a practice of our church is at no point in the service uh, do we actually pass a plate for offerings. There are so many people that are out there that think, if I just put this in the offering, then that means my prayer is going to be answered. Then that means my situation is going to change. Then that means this is going to happen. And we'd rather say, if that's what you're thinking, we want to make it as hard as possible for you to figure out how to give to this church, which we do a pretty good job of doing. Um, (laughs) Because we don't want you to think, oh, I did this, and that means, no, no, no. That deed doesn't rack up points in God's mind. He wants us to give out of the overflow of what he's poured in our hearts. And we give in response to his giving. So we need our deeds to give us a platform with which to speak. But we can't assume that, well, people just watch me, they'll figure it out. No, no they can just look at us and say, yeah, you just think you need to be a good dad, need to be a good dad. If you just do all those things, then God will love you. And you know what? I stink at this, I stink at that. I never, I don't ever see that happening in my life. They, we need both. We need our words, we need our deeds. Together, speaking the same message, 
without hypocrisy, which basically just means we want them to be unified, that our beliefs and our behavior match so that our lives reflect what we believe and that by our words, we challenge other people and invite them specifically. We put it to them that it's possible for them to have a relationship with God like we do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. And as we look back on the, the lives of people of old, we realize that people are people and there's so many things we can learn even when we're studying um, a story from thousands and thousands of years ago that our hearts still wrestle with so many of the same issues, our actions still, um, our temptations are, are so similar. Even though our culture is different, our language is different, our dress is different. And so, uh, Father, we pray that you would help us in hearing of the faithfulness of other people to embrace it as a challenge to be faithful in our own day, in our own culture, in our own time, that you would help our words and our deeds to line up and to match in praise and honor and worship of your great name. You have given us so many blessings that we can't possibly number. And we do desire that as we communicate to this world, that they would realize that it's you alone who are good, that it's you alone who can save, that there is nothing good in us. And so we thank you for all of your faithfulness and all of your provision. In your son's name we pray, amen.